starts with a desire planted deep within your heart. You pray in faith and wait for God to move. But time passes and you wonder, did he hear me when I called? Should I even have prayed that prayer at all? You'll never pray a prayer your father will not answer. He can't ignore his child's earnest request. While you're waiting and believing for what you thought was best, trust God if he says no, you're still blessed. There must be a greater yes. There comes a time when childlike faith must graduate to trust. Trials come and you're convinced you're on your own. But the teacher's often silent while you're in the hardest test. And he'll answer when it's time with what is best. You'll never pray a prayer your father will not answer. He can't ignore his child's earnest request. While you're waiting and believing for what you thought was best, trust God if He says no, you're still blessed. There must be a greater yes. Now, sometimes God will answer just like we God, if he says no, you're still blessed. There must be a greater yes. Oh, there must be a greater yes.
Well, Taylor, if you can hear me, I've been blessed. Great song. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here again with Kathleen, my wife, and uh, trust that God will again bless us by his word. I do want to explain why I wasn't here last uh, Sunday. My granddaughter was being baptized in a river in Oregon with that cool mountain ice and snow. And uh, to be immersed in that kind of a situation is, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I was gonna, almost going to say blessing, but uh, uh, I'm sure God blessed uh, notwithstanding the water. This morning I'd like to speak on a subject that I, that I need to hear myself. It has to do with uh, anxiety. Uh, when anxiety blurs our life's focus. Any of you anxious about the election coming up? All right. <laughs> Not yet. But maybe it's coming. Uh, anyone anxious about uh, the economy? Yes. Have you ever been so anxious about something that you forgot to keep your appointment? Locked your keys in your car? You forgot to make that important phone call? You burned the toast twice in three minutes? <laughs> I know all about those. They're biographical. Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. And I'd like to read uh, verses 19 through verse 34. <clears throat> verse 19. Do not... Store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried or anxious about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? And who of you, by being worried or anxious, 
can add a single hour to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What will we eat or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And may God bless the reading of his word. Anxiety. During my college days at Cal Berkeley, I was elected president of the InterVarsity group there. And I took that job very, very seriously. And I was very gung-ho. I had lined up a man by the name of Lou Zamperini to speak to us. He, if you don't know Lou Zamperini, was the fastest miler of all time. In other notes of notoriety of this man, he, with others, stole Adolf Hitler's personal flag at the Olympic Games. He was shot down in the Pacific and was in a life raft for 56 days, which was a record. At the end of 56 days, the Japanese caught up with him and put him in a concentration camp. He was one of the early celebrity converts of Billy Graham. And I felt real good about having Lou Zamperini as our guest speaker. I carefully drew up an ad and gave it to one of the fellows to place in the Daily Cal newspaper. The ad was scheduled for page three. And if you know anything about advertising, page three is the optimum page for advertising. Terrific time and terrific newspaper position, I thought. I was at the student union early the next morning to get hold of my newspaper and to see our ad. And you guessed it, there was no ad. Our man forgot to place it. I was angry, and I was disappointed. And when Lou Zamperini arrived, he asked me if he could get a dozen or so copies of the ad. He said it would help him to get on other campuses. So to my anger was added acute embarrassment. And by this point, by this time, my anxiety level was just out of the roof. At 2 o'clock that afternoon, after a fairly good rally with Lou Zamperini, I got a phone call by the Job Placement Bureau asking me why I had missed my 1.30 appointment. And I had left this particular corporate official twiddling his tongues. 
Talk about anxiety. I was full of it. Well, Matthew chapter 6, our passage, suggests that one of the greatest inhibitors for a godly focus on life is anxiety. It really inhibits a godly focus. Anxiety is one of the great problems of life concerning which people see a counselor, therapist, for relief and help. In the preceding uh, verses of chapter 6, uh, we will notice that uh, in verses 19 to 24, there are presented three various lifestyle alternatives with regard to how people live. In verses 19 to 21, there's the choice of where we bank, on earth or in heaven. That's choice. And then in verses 22 and 23, there's the choice between light and darkness, or where do we fix our eyes? Where is our focus? What do we look at? What do we pay attention to? And then in verse 24, the choice between two employers, wealth or God, or who is your boss? Who's your boss in life? Where is your focus? In verse 25, we have the conclusion that Jesus makes with regard to, those, to these lifestyle issues. And Jesus has called us to think and to see the issues clearly. And now, today, he asks us to act. Choose heavenly treasure over earthly treasure. Choose light over darkness. Choose God over wealth or mammon. Three times over in our chapter, Jesus says, don't worry or don't be anxious in verses 25, 31, and 34. And what Jesus is saying responds to the nagging question that's inside all of us. And the question seems to be, if I make God and his interests my dominant ambition, what about my needs? What about the essentials for living, such as food and drink and clothing? Are not these needs something that I need to pay attention to? Something that I might even become anxious about? Abraham Maslow, a prominent psychiatrist in the psychotherapy field, developed what he called a hierarchy of needs, proceeding from the very elemental to the more sophisticated type of need. Uh, physical needs, needs for survival, those are the elemental needs, the very basic, basic, basic things of life. And I'm not going to major on Maslow. I did that when I was in graduate school, and uh, I've had enough of that. Uh, I want to see what Jesus is talking about. Well, some might say, well, it's easy for Jesus to say, choose these 
basic things concerning which God has an interest in. And it's easy for him to say that because uh, he can multiply five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000. But I can't do that. So what does Jesus mean when he says, don't be anxious or don't worry? Don't worry about a thing. We need to be careful and not misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He does not deny or despise the needs of the body. As a matter of fact, he made the body himself. And he takes care of it. In this same chapter, chapter 6, Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So what is he saying then? What is Jesus saying? Well, I'd like to begin, first of all, with the expression, don't be anxious. Because that expression partakes of at least two meanings. It can mean, don't have that bad habit of just going through life with a cloud over your head, uh, anxious about this, anxious about that, anxious about everything. It can mean, don't develop an anxious frame of mind. Or if you have already fallen into it, then stop that habit. Now, the Greek word translated anxious means to be distracted. The same word was used to describe Martha in her busyness. She was distracted. The text says with her serving and busy works, she forgot about the one thing that was needful. So distraction can create problems for us. And the Greek word anxious can also mean a kind of a choking care. The word is used in the story of the sower whose good seed fell among thorns and that seed was choked by the cares of this life. What Jesus is saying don't be distracted or diverted from that which is primary. Don't get thrown off the track with pursuing other things. Keep your focus primary, not on the secondary. And what this word suggests also is don't allow yourself to be choked with anxiety. This is what anxiety does. It sidetracks us. It chokes us. It gives us ulcers. It immobilizes us. It blurs our focus. And we fail in our primary goal in life. Dr. Carnell, from Fuller Seminary years ago, in one of his books, said that destructive anxiety has one certain sign. It leads a person with undefined goals and no reason to live. Well, let's go a little bit further and ask the why question. Why does Jesus say, don't be anxious? And I'd like to suggest three reasons. First of all, because it's unproductive. Perhaps except for ulcers and still more worry. Secondly, because it's unnecessary. 
Verse 27 says, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, so why worry about them when my Father knows about them? Thirdly, and most importantly, it is unworthy or incompatible with the worth of a Christian life. And I'd like to think of these three things now a little bit more. First, don't be anxious because it's unproductive. Notice verse 27. This verse is commonly translated in two different ways. I'm not sure which translation yours is, but let me just speak about both of those. One of the ways in which it is translated is that you cannot, by worry, add one cubit or 18 inches to your height. Maybe you don't want to add 18 inches. In fact, to be able to do this through worrying would be quite an accomplishment. You know, you could then write a book, The Positive Power of Worry. You know, just added 18 inches. This verse obviously suggests that this cannot be done. But you know this, that God adds inches to our height between childhood and adulthood. Isn't that neat? He can do it, but we can't. Kathleen and I, years and years ago now, worked with an anxious young man who was one inch too short from the minimum requirement to be a policeman. Now, if worrying could have helped, he would have made captain of the police department in very short order. He attempted to have his body stretched. He had his height measured in the morning. He prayed. He went to counselors. He was anxious. Nothing worked. He didn't make it. He couldn't add, talk about 18 inches, he couldn't add one inch to his height. Now, the NIV and the New American Standard Bible give this verse a slightly different translation. It reads, Who of you, by worrying or being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? Can you add an hour to your life? And this, too, is beyond our competence, especially if we are anxious about it. Rather than lengthening our life, our anxiety will perhaps shorten it. And the conclusion seems to be, just as we leave these kinds of things to God, wouldn't it be sensible to trust him for lesser matters like food and clothing and shelter? The second response to why Jesus says, don't be anxious, is that it's unnecessary. Look at verse 32. Our Lord knows we need drink and clothing. And the Lord uses birds in verse 26 as an illustration of God's supply of food and uses flowers in verses 28 to 30 to illustrate his supply of beautiful clothing. How does our heavenly Father feed the birds of the air? And one answer might be, well, he, he doesn't. They feed themselves. Others would say, oh, yes, God does feed them. God doesn't stretch out a divine hand full of food and say, okay, birdies, come here and eat. He provides everything in nature, everything necessary. 
And one could say something similar about plants. I look in my uh, backyard and I see birds feeding all the time. Uh, it's something that I have put out, out there. Um, and they help themselves. They don't even ask for permission. They just go and just go and get it. Several years ago, Kathy and I uh, went up with some friends up Crystal Mountain in Washington to look and photograph the wildflowers. They were beautiful. And of course, they prompted a number of questions. Who planted them? Who fertilized them? Who watered them? Who sprayed them? Who clothed them? Who took care of them? And in what sense were they wild? And the conclusion here seems to be, can't we trust him to feed and clothe us who are of much more value than birds and flowers? I just recalled my interaction with a man who was dying in the Veterans Hospital in Martinez. As a matter of fact, he was our first convert in the new church that we had begun in Moraga, where I live. Went to see him, and uh, before I went, I thought I would rehearse what I might say to him, what might be helpful to him. So I came up with this idea, that I would go into the hospital and say hello and just a few little chit-chatty things, and then I would ask him, would you like for me to read the Bible? And I had him saying, sure, that'd be nice. And uh, then I had him, uh, then I also said to him, uh, well, where would you like me to read? And uh, I had him saying, well, why don't you pick it? And uh, then I would read John 3.16, you know. Well, I, I went to the hospital and uh, started out, okay, we had our chit-chat. And then I asked him if uh, he would like for me to read from the Bible, and he said yes. And uh, then I asked him the, the big question, where, is there a particular passage you would like me to read? And he said, yes. He said, read to me the passage about the birds of the air. And I knew the passage. And I said, oh, Lord, how do I bring the gospel in on this? So I read the passage. And while reading... A little bird came and alighted on the windowsill. And he looked at it and began to weep. And a short time later, he surrendered his life to the Lord. Martin Luther had this to say about the birds. that they are some of the most potent evangelists in the whole world. They testify to the grace of God and to the care of God. And they do it every day. And there's billions and billions of these birds, and they testify to the grace of God. And here was this one little bird, and Mr. Dunn uh, saw the bird came to know the Lord. He died about three weeks later. 
God provides for believers by using whatever means he gives us. And God provides for very ordinary channels as farmers and grocers and carpenters and fishermen and, and the rest. And if God promises to feed and clothe his children, how is it that so many are ill, clad, and undernourished? Some might ask. It doesn't seem to me that there's necessarily a simple solution to this problem. Uh, but um, one important point should be made, namely that the most basic cause of hunger in our world is not inadequate divine provision, but an inequitable human distribution. And the truth is that God has provided ample resources in our earth and in our oceans. And it seems significant that in this same Gospel of Matthew, the Jesus who here says that our Heavenly Father feeds and clothes his children, later says we must ourselves feed the hungry and clothe the naked, and we will be judged accordingly. And God has his various means by which he feeds us and by which he clothes us. I have two grandchildren who just came back from Mexico building homes, shelter for people. And this is one of the ways in which he does it. A few years ago, well, quite a number of years ago now, actually, Kathy and I were wondering and being anxious that when the time came for me to retire from teaching at the Bible school, who would pay for our medical insurance? You know. The, the school was providing the, the monthly uh, payments for our medical insurance, and, and how could we afford this on top of everything else? Well, our Heavenly Father knew our needs. And just about that time, there was an organization in the Chicago area, Stewart's Foundation, that provided insurance coverage for me and my wife at no charge. Paid everything. I didn't know at that time that Kathleen would need extensive extensive monies to pay for her cancer operation. And then later on, <clears throat> when she had a stroke and was hospitalized for a great part of the time, a, a, great, a great number of days, that there would be a great need for money. But it was all supplied. Every penny. Every penny. That's how God does it. I had no idea how this would be supplied. But God did it. The reasons Jesus gives for trusting God are legal-type arguments. If you haven't noticed this, uh, I'd like to point this out to you. The book of Romans is full of this kind of argument. Um, it's the much more arguments. Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater. In other words, this. Note this. If God takes care of the lesser, birds and flowers, 
much more, much more will he take care of the greater his people. Get that argument in this passage. It is a potent argument, and you have it in, uh, in Romans chapter 5 several times, the much more. You have it in Romans chapter 8, the much more arguments. Matter of fact, turn to Romans chapter 8. Be worthwhile to just notice that. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now notice the much more argument here. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If he gave his son, is he going to overlook the lesser? No. He's already done the greater. And you have this argument throughout the entire book of Romans. And it's a powerful argument to notice. Uh, it, it's just a wonderful, wonderful argument. One of the last things Jesus says in this passage here, don't be anxious because the worry is incompatible with the worth of a Christian's life. And I want you to notice verses 25 and 26. Do you all know, all of you who are believers, that you're worth a great deal in the eyes of God? You're worth a great deal in the eyes of God. You're precious to God. Precious to God. To be anxious about food, drink, and clothing suggests a lack of understanding of who we really are. Human life is not just a physiological machine needing to be protected, lubricated, and fueled. A person is more than a mouth and stomach and an elementary canal. To think of man in these terms is to degrade him. This is called reductionism. And B.F. Skinner was full of that. He reduced a human being to the sum of its parts. A head, hands, arms, legs. You know, if you could put them all together, would you have a human being? No. You'd have a bunch of dead parts that would soon decay. You know, if you, if you, you took a head and two kidneys and two lungs, you would never get a human being. The great majority of today's advertisements are directed towards the body. Underwear to, dis to display the body's attributes. Deodorants to keep it smelling sweet. Hundreds of over-the-counter medicines to keep it feeling good. This preoccupation 
or maybe obsession prompts the question, are these the kinds of things worthy objects to which one should devote our lives? Has human life no more significance than that? Jesus says, the heathen seek these things. Well, let them. Unfortunately, they're going to be grossly disappointed. Those things are not the supreme good or what the philosophers call the, the summum bonum, the, the ultimate good. Well, one last point I want to make is that believers are not ex exempt from experiencing trouble. It's true that God tells us not to worry, and we ought not worry. To be free from worry and to be free from trouble are not the same thing. There are many indications that Jesus knew all about calamity. Although God closed the grass of the field, it is still cut down and burned. God provides even for the lonely sparrows. He feeds them. Jesus said on one occasion, are not two sparrows sold for one cent, one penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But sparrows do fall to the ground and get killed. His promise was not that they would fall, that they would not fall, but that this would not happen without God's knowledge. People fall too from airplanes. Christ's words to not be anxious cannot be taken as a promise that the law of gravity will be suspended in our case. Don't test that one. A Christian's freedom from anxiety is not due to some guaranteed freedom from trouble, but to the foolishness of worry. Christian's freedom from anxiety is due to the supreme confidence that God is our Father. And then, who even permits suffering, and that all fits in to his orbit of care and love. He does not abandon us when we have that accident. When I was 16 years old, I was in a head-on collision seated in the back seat, and I have scars all over my head to, uh, to prove the accident. Uh, God saw fit that I survived. In verse 34, the last verse, Jesus mentions today and tomorrow. All worry generally is about tomorrow whether food or clothing or anything else. But all worry is experienced today. Worry is about tomorrow, but the experience of worry is today. And what Jesus points out to us, implicit in the text, that these fears of ours about tomorrow, which we feel so acutely today, may not really ha even happen. We don't know. And the popular advice, don't worry, just be happy, may never happen. 
Maybe to say, don't worry that somebody is lacking in sympathy, but it's perfectly true. People worry that they may not pass an exam or find a job. Don't worry about it, Dean. Or get married, or keep their health, or succeed in some effort. Many worries never materialize. Worry is a waste. A waste of time, a waste of thought, a waste of nervous energy. If we anticipate troubles, the trouble that'll be tomorrow, we double it. Because we worry about it today, and then we, then we got tomorrow. Maybe, you know, we don't know. We carry today's needs as well as tomorrow's. So let's not double it. The God who tells us not to worry also tells us how we might have a relationship with him. And in conclusion, I'd just like to say a few words about that. If you do not have a relationship with him, you may have reason to worry. You may have reason to worry because God tells us about the future of the unbeliever. And believe me, it's not a happy one. Do not worry. To be secure in a relationship is to have Jesus Christ come into my life. To come into my life and, and tell me, uh, Hugo, you've been a sinner. Yes, you have. And if you don't accept my offer, things are not going to be very good for you. That's the bad news. But should I put my trust in him? Should I believe in him? Then I have my future prepared. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, Jesus said. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many places, abiding places, mansions, if you will. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. And I trust if there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, Trust today will be the day where you will have that relationship. And put that worry down. Bury the worry. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. The name that is above every name. The name by which we call on and by which we are saved. Father, we pray for each person here that they might know you as Savior, as Lord, as their provider, as their redeemer, as their reconciler, as the one with whom they will spend 
and eternity. And so, Father, we, we come to give you thanks for your presence with us, for your presence in our lives, and for loving us supremely. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.